Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Michael DeLand, an assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Gonzaga University. In our conversation, Mike introduces us to the work of Herbert Bloomer and discusses how Bloomer's process-oriented theorizing of interaction and sense-making provides methodological inspiration and how Bloomer's critiques of more structural ways of studying social life provided confidence as he built his own research agenda. Mike also introduces his research on pickup basketball to illustrate a Bloomer-inspired approach. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. So we are here today to talk about Herbert Bloomer, and I'm wondering if you could just get us going by giving us a short introduction to who he was, or, or perhaps more importantly, what he's actually known for. Yeah, sure. So Herbert Bloomer was an American sociologist who's probably best known for his theoretical and methodological writings about symbolic interactionism. Um, he was trained as an undergrad and I think a master's student at University of Missouri, but then probably most famously um, developed into a sociologist as a PhD student at the University of Chicago, where he worked closely with George Herbert Mead, um, a, a kind of pragmatist philosopher, but also with that, that kind of classic generation of um, Chicago sociologists, a lot of urban sociologists like Robert Park and Ernest Burgess, W.I. Thomas, Albion Small. So um, he was really part of that kind of classic Chicago tradition. He was contemporaries with Louis Wirth and Everett Hughes. Um, he ended up staying at the University of Chicago um, from, say, the early 20s to early 50s, at which point he moved to Berkeley and he became the president of the ASA. Um, and so he's really squarely within that kind of classic tradition of the Chicago school. Um, most no, uh, He's kind of most... Um, famous for his connection to the School of Symbolic Interactionism, working with George Herbert Mead and having a kind of interactionist sensibility about social life. Do you get a sense, and I'm, I'm actually really interested in this, I, I'm always interested in this question, but I'm very interested about Herbert Bloomer. Do you get a sense that he's widely read in the larger discipline? And the reason I'm so interested in this is, I feel like in a sense, it's a question about the place of symbolic interaction in sociology, and also a question about those mid-century theorists, those names that we know, but I don't actually know who reads them or, or when people read them. So I'm curious what your own thought on that is. Like, do sociologists still read Bloomer? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that in, say, like, um, introduction to sociology classes um, for undergrads that a lot of students kind of hear his name. Um, they might hear his name um, in the kind of er early on in the semester, reading a chapter on kind of the social construction of reality, or maybe they get a little bit on symbolic interactionism. Maybe they have to think about um, kind of face-to-face -face interactions for a little while. But my sense is they, they get a, a flavor for that, and then the class typically moves on to more substantive topics, um, education or race or other things, and typically then kind of leaves behind the interactionist sensibility. So I think a lot of undergrads get a taste of it, um, but it's not kind of core to their sociological training. And then um, as grad students, um, it really depends. I mean, in some wings where people are training in a specific um, form of ethnography, they would probably read a lot of Bloomer or certain professors teaching social psychology or deviance or social problems or social movements might track that lineage back to Bloomer. But I think it's really possible to go through 
um, both an undergrad and a PhD department in sociology without actually reading anything by Bloomer. When did when did you actually read Bloomer, or how did you how did you find your way to him? Yeah. Good question. I guess uh, for me, it was as an undergrad. Um, I had the kind of pleasure and opportunity to participate in a summer field research academy at UCLA where I was a student. Um, It was run by um, Bob Emerson and Jack Katz. um, And basically their approach was to throw us out into the world, throw us out into Los Angeles, get us to choose a place. And by the second week, we were supposed to be coming back to class with descriptive field notes of whatever we'd been observing. And one of our primary texts that we had to read was actually by Bob Emerson and colleagues called Writing Ethnographic Field Notes. I think a lot of ethnographers read that book. And I remember Bloomer being cited in the first couple of pages as um, somebody who really justified the study of interaction. So like you're out in the field, so much stuff is happening, what should I actually describe? And the practical advice in Emerson's book is to start trying to describe social interactions as people are kind of um, meaningfully responding to one another's behavior. Like you can sink your teeth into those kind of sequences of interaction and that becomes really good kinds of ethnographic evidence. So in the back of my mind as an undergrad, the name Bloomer was always associated with somebody who kind of encouraged and justified the close-up study of face-to-face interaction. And then you, you decide to track down his actual writing or when did you actually get to the point of saying, here's this name, he's justifying the type of stuff that I'm interested in, maybe I'll go to the primary text. I think as an undergrad, I mostly got a feel for Bloomer um, from reading Irving Goffman. So um, Goffman, of course, is one of his most famous students and is really credited with kind of bringing symbolic interactionism into the kind of mainstream in some ways. And I think I had Bloomer's ideas articulated to me a little bit. I mean, people would talk about him. Um, but it really wasn't until grad school that I think I sunk my teeth into the original texts and started trying to take his, uh, his original writings more seriously. Um, and I was a PhD student at UCLA, which had a core of people who really emphasized and taught about the interactionist tradition, both symbolic interactionism, but also ethnomethodology. And I think one of the reasons why I took to his writing as a grad student is because he has this kind of, I guess I might call it like a pugilistic way of writing about sociological theory. Like he has a position, he has a method that he's going to advocate for. And he presents these really incisive and kind of clear headed critiques of other ways of working. And maybe it was partly because of my own sort of intellectual immaturity as a grad student. But I think I really like I fell for that. Like I I felt like he was articulating something that was justifying a certain kind of work that I was trying to do. And I could be on his team. I could kind of fly his banner. I could stake my kind of flag in the in the way that he was articulating sociology. And I think that that was a kind of source of comfort for me as a grad student, Um, both his kind of advocacy for naturalistic ethnography. But like I said, his sort of incisive critiques of other kind of more distant or more structural or more removed ways from studying uh, social life. 
there's a certain appeal of that type of writing at that stage, right? Where you're trying to figure out what the field is, where you belong, and to counter someone who lays it out and also says why you're right and those other people are not doing it correctly. <laughs> at that point in time, I, I found those writings so appealing. And now looking back, I don't find them quite as charming, but I can, there is that particular moment where they're incredibly useful. Yeah, I feel like I needed somebody to tell me that what I was doing was like a good and established way of working. And I think especially for ethnographers who are sometimes kind of floundering around looking, trying to figure out what their project is about, at least that was the tradition of ethnography I was working in, um, Bloomer gave me a kind of safe harbor and told me that it was was, was, uh, interesting to um, be out in the world doing the kind of work that I was doing. So you've, you've set up some of the ways that he influenced the field. I'm wondering if there were particular ideas or a particular way that he conceptualized, whether it's the approach to the research or the way he theorized interaction. Was there a particular idea that had an influence on you or that you found yourself gravitating towards? Yes. Well, one thing I could say is that one of the, in addition to his kind of most famous book, um, Symbolic Interactionism, Perspective and Method, which was assigned to me in, in, in kind of pieces, it's a collection of essays that he wrote. One of the pieces that I was assigned to read uh, was his critique of Thomas and Znanecki's uh, Polish Peasant in Europe and America. And I was really struck by his incisive critiques of people from within the Chicago tradition. It seemed like he had a lot of I guess I'll say chutzpah to like kind of critique some of his own mentors and teachers. And part of what he was critiquing was their use of concepts like attitudes and values, which he saw as sort of abstractions from everyday social life on the ground. And so there's a methodological way in which he, it felt like he was saying that you really need to ground claims in your data or, or, or maybe to craft claims that are fit to your data. And so, so part of it was that methodological sensibility, which felt like something that I could really hang my hat on and really try to um, stick closely to. But a couple of other things, maybe. Uh, one is his insistence that uh, sociology um, should be fit to the nature of human life. And he had a specific idea of what that meant. For him, one thing that means is to study the subjective side of social life, that human beings are sense-making creatures, um, we're we're constantly interpreting a meaningful context around us, and um, rather than sort of responding directly to sociological or psychological stimuli, we're constantly interpreting and making sense. And so any science of society, he would say, would have to take that seriously. And the other thing I think that I I took from him and still take from him is uh, appreciating the way that human beings are constantly making and managing their existence, which is inevitably a process. It's an ongoing set of activities. I mean, I, I think of him as advocating a sociology of verbs rather than nouns, things that are happening, events. And I think he saw that on the extremely micro level of like an individual who is indicating things to themselves um, on a slightly more meso level when individuals are interacting with one another or forming groups. Um, And then on a macro level, too, uh, things like revolutions or social movements are kind of stories that are inevitably made of human beings grappling with the world around them and interacting with one another. So that there's like at every kind of level of granularity, there's an emphasis on process. 
So that's um, another thing that I think has been really important to me in my thinking. Your research, especially your recent article, is maybe my favorite example of this type of research, uh, this type of employing Bloomer's ideas. So I'm wondering if we could shift over to your own work for a bit. Sure. And uh, maybe you could just introduce us to the type of stuff you were working and we can think about how Bloomer influenced you as you figured out what you wanted to do. So I mentioned my undergraduate training in this um, field research academy and the I needed to find a place to hang out in the city. And the thing that I felt like I could do um, out in the city of L.A. was go to public parks and play basketball. I needed something where I could interact with and mix up with people who I didn't already know. And I had played high school basketball, and that seemed like a kind of natural fit that I could show up at a public park and get myself into games and start mixing up with people. Um, And I had this kind of like developing sensibility about being interested in kind of face-to-face interactions. And the basketball court also seemed to fit that um, bill because it sort of struck me that when you go to a public park basketball game, there really is no there there independent of people interacting with one another. If you strip away all of the work that it takes to form teams or to call fouls or to kind of form a sideline cue, like all of that requires the management of face-to-face interaction. It requires the fitting together of lines of behavior from a lot of different individuals. And nothing is pre-made. There's nothing there prior to their arrival. And so it just felt like a really interesting setting in which to apply, apply that interaction as sensibility, to show the way that through interactions people manage and ultimately construct a social reality together. So you found your way to the court pre-Bloomer, but you were already starting to have an interest in that process and that type of interaction, even when he was just someone that maybe you saw cited in a text or maybe even before that. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I was um, becoming sensitive to studies of social interaction and Bloomer was kind of um, bouncing around in my head somewhere, but I I hadn't necessarily grappled with his full kind of theoretical perspective yet. I'm always interested in what our relationship to theory is, or rather the theorists who inspire us. So for example, some people have that relationship where they're seeking to just update and bring an idea into a contemporary setting. Other people have this, uh, these ideas kind of floating in the abstract as, you know, they're always already there. They're this inspiration, but you don't even ever cite them. Other people are seeking to not only update to show how they're wrong. You've been working with Bloomer for a long time. You encountered his ideas as an undergraduate. You carried it through grad school. Now you're a professor at Gonzaga. How has that relationship changed? So I think it's changed over time. I think uh, early on as a graduate student, when I started publishing papers, my data was sticking pretty close to the on-site, live management of social interaction at the, at the, at the park, how people were collaboratively responding to one another in the course of this um, kind of chaos, chaotic stream of interactions at this basketball court. There's so much going on, so many people making claims, so many people responding to one another. There's a lot to describe. And so um, one thing that I could always do when I returned home from playing basketball was um, describe some of the interactions that struck me as interesting. And 
one consistent site of social interaction that I could remember uh, was the rule disputes. So the rule disputes are a moment when the game is put on pause, the collective attention is drawn to two or more individuals who are trying to decide, did the ball bounce here on this side of the line or did it bounce there on that side of the line? And there's no objective outside observer who can say, this is the answer, let's move on. So they have to collaboratively do it together. They have to somehow come to a a resolution or else they can't keep playing. Um, And so part of the construction of the game depends on being able to resolve these questions of of rule and questions of fact. And so over time, I developed a a pretty relatively large corpus of descriptions of, of rule disputes. And that became something for me to like sink my teeth into. How are they doing this? And to what end are they um, uh, resolving the disputes in the way that they do? Over time, I think that my relationship to Bloomer changed a little bit, or I, I took a different part of his theorizing more seriously. And Bloomer has this very famous way of writing that um, human beings have a self, Um, And it always struck me as, well, that's an interesting way to talk about an individual. What does it actually mean that a human being has a self? Um, And one of my frustrations with Bloomer is that he has, after all of his kind of combative theoretical rhetoric where he says this is the right way to work and these more structural theories are missing important stuff on the ground, he never really shows us what that would look like. Like, what would it look like to do a sociology that appreciates that individuals have a self. And I think people who have followed in his kind of tradition have have done that in various ways. But I guess I felt like I could build on it in a certain way. And that is to think about the self as a biographical process, one that develops over time. Um, So the sense of self uh, is not just a thing that you have in each interaction. It's something that accumulates over the course of many interactions. We all have a sense of self that's born of the very particular life trajectory that we have that nobody else shares. And what I wanted to do as a kind of interactionist was to figure out a way to bridge the study of face-to-face behavior, face-to-face interactions that play out in a specific moment with those longer biographical arcs, the self as an ongoing biographical phenomenon um, that I think we all know we have, but is really hard to incorporate into a kind of systematic sociological analysis. And that's why I kind of, I mean, the truth is I've always taken to um, what we might call sort of character-driven ethnographies ethnographies where you actually feel like you meet somebody and you kind of get a feel for who they are and how they think of themselves. And so I kind of feel like my work is trying to like bridge that sort of character representation because it shows biographical processes with the kind of micro analytic stuff that a lot of symbolic interactionists do. I have to say that it's one of the things that I really enjoy about your article or the way you approach your research. And I know you mentioned Goffman before, but you don't really get that in Goffman, right? He followed Bloomer, but it's a different type of understanding of what you're researching. 
And I love with your research how you can see how in the course of a basketball game, maybe it's over some sort of argument about whether a ball was out or whether there was a foul, but you, you see these characters emerge and how people draw on their biography to demonstrate that they're someone who, who demands respect or, or deserves, uh, you know, should be trusted when they explain what a foul is or what a foul isn't. Um, and I don't know if I have a question here as much as just saying, yeah, that's a, that's a compliment. I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. And I, you know, the title of the article that I landed on um, was uh, Men in Their Moments, which is a kind of twist on Goffman's classic um, call to study moments and their men, to start with the kind of situation and to see how people are fitting themselves into that kind of the, the phase of conduct that's a, that's a product of the situation. And I always took that really seriously. That was always fundamental to, to how I wanted to work as a sociologist. Um, I saw that coming straight out of Bloomer in certain ways. Um, but I think we all know that this, our senses of self accumulate across situations. Um, and Goffman's work, you know, because we never, he gives these little references to, to people or to um, a boss or an employee here, or a restaurant worker there, but you never really get a feel for who that person is or how they understand themselves. And so I wanted to bring that longer biographical trajectory into the kind of interactionist tradition. Okay, so we can see how what you do is different than the more uh, Goffman-inspired tradition. I'm wondering if there are particular theorists that you find Bloomer's ideas work partic particularly well with, that you were able to draw inspiration from alongside of Bloomer. Yeah, I guess here I want to mention um, Harold, Harold Garfinkel and ethnomethodology and conversation analysis, which is a kind of subfield or uh, elaboration of ethnomethodology. Uh, today, many people lump those two things together as EMCA. There's an ASA section um, called EMCA. And I don't know, I've always, because I, partly because of my context at UCLA, I was kind of, I had a foot in symbolic interactionism and ethnography, but also a foot training with people who are doing ethnomethodology and especially conversation analysis. And so I've long been interested in what is the relationship to these two kind of branches of uh, micro-analytic sociology. And I think they often do get kind of lumped together as the kind of micro stuff. And there's some good reason for that because they both had um, critiques of more, I guess you could say conventional ways of doing sociological theorizing. Um, and their critiques were based in kind of like recognizing the everyday sense-making processes of individuals in interaction. But there's also some really important methodological and kind of philosophical differences that I think I'm trying to pull out in this paper especially. Um, that, you know, the idea that from Bloomer that individuals have a self and for me, that's a kind of biographically emergent self, um, is entirely absent from um, ethnomethodology and conversation analysis. That EMCA and, and conversation analysis especially is so focused on the collaborative construction or production of orderliness in a, in a kind of everyday encounter um, that something like an individual's sense of self has just com completely fallen off the agenda. And I think because of that, 
conversation analysis has kind of migrated away from sociology. I mean, it lives on more in kind of applied linguistics or communication studies or maybe linguistic anthropology. Um, and I think that's partly because of, well, I should say that like the incredible detail that CA scholars produce about the collaborative order maintaining and order producing interactions that they analyze, it's, it, it's amazing. Um, but then I feel like there's always this sense of me that like as an ethnographer, like I want to know who these people are um, because, you know, they're not just making it up anew in every situation. There's something continuous. They're bringing with them something from previous interactions. And it's really hard to show that empirically to the standards that conversation analysts would appreciate. But I think... Um, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to try to to know the people whose conduct you want to understand, because that's inevitably going to shape their approach to any given here and now situation. All right. Final question. I always use this as a wrap up. If you were standing in front of a group of undergraduates, a group of graduates, a group of fellow uh, academics, professors, uh, sociologists, what would you say is the reason we should engage with Herbert Bloomer's work? Um, because as, as we talked about before, Bloomer is this type of person that a lot of people recognize the name, but it is possible to avoid even as you get your bachelor's degree in sociology, as you get your master's, as you get your PhD. It is, it is easy to avoid. So why should we read this stuff? Or, or perhaps it's a twist ending <laughs> and you're going, you're going to say that we, we should not read this stuff. So I think for graduate students, especially for graduate students who are thinking about doing something ethnographic, it is a kind of um, it's a kind of no brainer to me that you should read some Bloomer and take what he is he says seriously. If for no other reason than he provides a very kind of clear headed advocacy for understanding the subjective worlds and experiences of the people that you're studying close up. Um, and I think um, most ethnographers want to take the kind of understandings of their participants really seriously. And so Bloomer is somebody who is kind of in your, he's an ally to you. He's, some, he's somebody who really is advocating for the kind of work you're doing. And like I said, that was really meaningful to me as I was starting out as an ethnographer. Um, but also because of that kind of pugilistic sensibility that he has where he kind of critiques other ways of working, it's, I think it's intellectually productive to wrestle with him. I mean, you don't have to fully fall in line into the interactionist tradition in order to kind of say like, well, I, I'm with Bloomer to this point, but at, this is the point at which he loses me. And this is the point at which I think we need to even as an ethnographer, we need to bring in a different theorist or we need to have a clear sense of something like structure or power. And just like wrestling with that tension, I think is super productive. Um, I'm also thinking about non-ethnographers though. And, um, you know, Bloomer's critiques about his, his, um, his, he gave a speech as the ASA president really critiquing um, the way that we use variables as sociologists. And I think it's useful to, to read those because it's just a really clearly articulated reminder that variables lump together a lot of human happenings um, 
that get kind of put into a black box so that they can work as a variable. And it's useful always to, to remind ourselves that like what is going on in the human worlds that our variable analysis is capturing. Um, and I think it's just a useful um, critique, but just a useful reminder to, to think those questions through and not just take for, for granted that the things that we are measuring with variables are themselves things in the world. Um, real quick to jump back to undergrads. Um, the reason why I like to give it to my undergraduates is they often hear that the social world is a constructed world, um, that we live in a socially constructed reality. I just think Bloomer is one of the kind of clearest and earliest people who articulated that in a way that students can still find tangible and useful and can like come up with examples of how they see it around them. And um, for me, that's just always kind of facilitated really fun conversations with my undergrads. I appreciate that answer a lot. And I'll say for listeners who are also convinced we're about to record a companion podcast where we have a chance to work through some of Bloomer together. Um, but I want to thank you for taking time to talk about how Bloomer inspired you, uh, how he impacted your own research. So this, this was great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kyle. It's been fun. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, Thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.